Recovery Elevator, episode 24. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to my Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I have been sober for 10 months, three weeks, and five days. We've got a great podcast in store for you guys today. It is part two of the four-part series called The Other Side. I still am going to interview an alcoholic, and today I have Jim, but I also am interviewing Emma, who's on the other side. She's a normal drinker. Well, she's not 21 yet, so she hasn't drank yet, I imagine, but she's on the other side. Her mom is an alcoholic, and it's crazy to think of the amount of growing up she's had to do. And almost wear the pants in the household when her mom was drinking, taking care of her little sister, Jessa. I say it in the podcast. I think the summer before my junior year in high school, I was chasing squirrels, shooting BB guns, and playing pogs. Maybe that was middle school, or maybe that's why the girls didn't talk to me. Who knows? After Emma, we've got Jim. And you're going to hear Jim is very AA. He says the word surrender like 50 times. And I say it in that interview that we, us, as alcoholics, we might sound like a broken record. We just keep saying the same shenanigans over and over and over, one day at a time. That whole focus on the progress, don't really worry about the perfection thing, one day at a time. Holy buckets, we've heard it before. We get it. But do you really get it? Because the instant you really think you do get it is when your addiction, who's in the backseat, jumps right up into the front seat. And now your addiction's got your ear. So Jim, more power to you, man. You have surrendered and you haven't forgotten that. Because I do remember on September 7th, 2014, that was the time when I finally surrendered for real. I have gotten a couple emails from people in the past saying, hey, you know, I didn't really jive very well with AA. Are you ever going to interview people that have gotten sober a different route? And actually, I think there are three or four Recovery Elevator interviewees who did not get sober the traditional way of AA. But now when I get those emails, I kind of chuckle to myself. And I'm not calling you out right now, the people that have written those emails, because I myself, I would have written that same email four years ago. When I read those emails now, I decipher it as, hey, can you interview somebody who got sober and and didn't have to put in like a lot of work? you know, write a bunch of stuff down, do a bunch of steps, uh, you know, humble the shit out of themselves and work with a sponsor, you know, and and do all that stuff that's like not very comfortable and and probably hard to do. Oh yeah. And I only got like 30 minutes a week to dedicate to the sobriety thing because football seasons come up. So, you know, that, that's kind of my priority. Yeah. Is there anybody out there you can interview that got sober that way? That program does not exist. Actually, now when I think about it, there is this new recovery program. Yeah, it's up by this pristine lake up in the Rocky Mountains. It's a week long. There's a whole lot of zip lining, tubing, canoeing, kayaking. There's Netflix. Oh, it's co-ed. And there's a general store that's open 24 hours. And you can pay with these things called sobriety bucks. How cool is that? Oh, I forgot the best part. When you leave, you never want to take a drink again and you're sober for life. Yeah, I reached out to this recovery group for an interview. They haven't gotten back to me, probably because it doesn't exist. So when I get emails like that now, I kind of just have to shrug it off because I would have written that email four years ago as well. It's almost like the aspiring actor or actress who expects to just get off the airplane in Los Angeles, walk right on the movie set, 
and hear the director say, and action, and start acting. And then right after that, they're going to walk up on the stage and accept their Oscar, right? Their Oscar. I think it's mandatory that before you make it to the big screen in Hollywood, you have to have three crappy barista jobs, be a waiter at four restaurants, bartender at two, get scammed on a headshots package at least twice, and have a false sense of entitlement. But the underlying thing is, it takes a lot of work to be a successful actor or actress. And wow, the same thing applies to sobriety. There's a lot of people out there looking for other programs. And then they're just going to accept their one-year chip or their one-year pat on the back because they're cured. Look, we have nothing to do with Alcoholics Anonymous. I've said I love the program. I really do. There are things I despise about the program. However, good or bad, I embrace all of it. If step eight said that I had to have a peanut butter and dirt sandwich the third Tuesday of every month, I'd be like, come on, that's gross. All right, I need a napkin, a plate, and can I get gluten-free bread? But I'd still do it because that's how bad I want to stay sober. Really? The bang for your buck? You can't find a better deal. Speaking of a buck, that's really all it is. If you have it, you put a dollar in the basket. And usually I have about three cups of coffee. That's 33 and a third cent per cup of coffee. I don't know how those places keep their doors open. All right, enough out of me. Let's hear from Emma. Right after we hear from our sponsor, Sober Nation. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well to family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recent recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can be found at www.SoberNation.com. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. Recovery Elevator, I'd like to welcome Emma to the podcast. Emma, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for joining us today. And Recovery Elevator, this is part two of a four-part series called The Other Side. Last week, we had Pete, who is a husband of an alcoholic. Today, we have Emma, who is the daughter of an alcoholic. And in the third part and fourth part of The Other Side series with Recovery Elevator, I'm going to try to find a parent of an alcoholic as well as a friend of an alcoholic just to get the whole perspective because us as alcoholics we really have no clue or the full idea of how much pain and struggles we are putting our loved ones through recovery elevator emma is 15 years old she is going to be a junior we're going to talk about last summer in august 2014 when emma had to step in and really intervene with her mom and emma just talk to me about that night in August of 2014. What happened? Um, okay, so my mom was out with her friends for most of the day, and they were drinking. And we came back like in the late afternoon. She, we came back to the house, and she was really tired. Um, and so she went into her room to take another nap, and she's been taking a ton of naps lately. And I'm it was just kind of normal. So I went into my room and started putting my stuff away because we were moving a lot of stuff in the house. And as I was doing that, I heard my mom crying in her room. And so, of course, I walked in there and I asked her what was wrong. And she said, I'm done and I don't want to do this anymore. And I said, do what? And she didn't answer me. She just kept crying and stuff. And um, so I started thinking, you know, maybe she wasn't, you know, 
want to live anymore. And I started getting really concerned. And I said, Mom, promise me you won't do anything stupid. You know, kind of hinting to her, don't do anything self-harm. And she said, Emma, I can't promise you that. So I got my sister um, to come into the room. And I said, Mom's having a hard time right now. Just make sure she doesn't open a window or she get out of bed. Just keep an eye on her. And my mom had pills on her um, bedside table thing, and I took them. And I went downstairs, um, put those away. Then I looked up a suicide hotline number on my phone. And then I called it, and I talked to this lady for a while. Um, she asked me a ton of questions, and... I answered them as best as I could, and I was talking to her outside so my mom couldn't hear because I didn't know how she was going to react if I, you know, was calling a suicidal hotline. Um, and she told me to take my mom to the Hope House. And, of course, I was 14, so I couldn't drive yet. So I called my mom's friend to see if she could take her, but she didn't answer. And so then I called my dad, and he answered. Um, and then he came over, and... Then Timmy uh, apparently got my phone call, and she came over, too, so they were both there. And my dad took me and my sister over to his house, and we stayed with him for a while while Kimmy took my mom over to the Hope House. And that was about it. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's got to be difficult. And I remember my summer when I was 14 years old. I was packing for football camp and a summer hiking trip. I wasn't calling the suicide hotline for my mom. That had been incredibly difficult to deal with. So congratulations on, on doing the right thing and, and stepping up there. But talk to me about your mom's habits, right? Growing up with an alcoholic and you understand your mom didn't realize she was an alcoholic till shortly after that moment. But did you ever realize that perhaps your mom drinks more than your friend's parents? And what was that like? To be honest, I never really realized because I don't know, I guess I didn't pay attention to my friend's parents and their drinking habits. And my mom had friends that were also alcoholics and I just didn't think better of it. I thought it was normal to drink that much and I didn't really ever questioned myself if my mom was an alcoholic until that night. I didn't even really know then. I just knew something was wrong. But it was, it just seemed normal, I guess. Us as alcoholics, we expect everybody around us to fully know what's going on, to decipher every situation. At the same time, we try to hide everything. How confusing is it to live with an alcoholic and try to figure it out, right? And you have you have a younger sister. Did you two ever talk about it? And there had to have been some confusion of like, what is going on here? Am I right? Me and my sister never really talked about it. Um, I guess I kind of thought sometimes myself, like, not maybe she should stop, but maybe she's had too much tonight or something like that. Like I never really took into consideration maybe stopping drinking like overall would be a solution for her. But have you ever, for example, had a resentment or you're like, man, I wish, or you'd say, I wish my mom didn't drink so much. Is this something that you've accepted or, 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 or is there a resentment there saying, I, I wish my mom could be a normal drinker, go out, to the games and have, have drinks, happy hour drinks with the friends or, or is this something that you just taken in stride? Um, I basically just accepted it, I guess. Like I said, I didn't really know what too much drinking was. I thought she was just kind of crazy <laughs> to be honest. Um, 
So I just kind of accepted it and went along with it and made sure that I was taking care of her and my sister as much as I could and um, kind of went with the lifestyle. Emma, you said taking care of my sister as much as I could. Is that something you had to do? Because you mentioned earlier that your mom was taking naps a lot. And when I was drinking, my nap rate was about triple of what the naps I take now. So I also took naps more often. Is that something you had to do just because your mom wasn't fully present? Yeah. Um, my mom, she usually come home from work and then go into her room and sleep. And so I would make dinner sometimes and try as best as I could. And if my sister had, like, questions or anything, I'd try to help her. And granted, we don't get along super well, but, you know, she's my sister, and I definitely love her and still want to take care of her. So I was doing that, and then if my mom needed anything, you know, I would go and help her with that. So, Emma, what is your view of an alcoholic now that you know your mom is an alcoholic? You also know that your mom is a kind and loving person. Is it difficult Mm -hmm. when you talk with friends? Do you ever do you say to your friends like, oh, yeah, my mom's an alcoholic or is that something that is personal to you guys? Um, I'm pretty open about it. And so is my mom. Like if someone asks me if, you know, or my mom, if. If my mom was an alcoholic, we'd say yes. It's not really something we hide. Most of my friends know about it, and they're fine with it. Now, you have had to learn a lot about this disease with the School of Hard Knocks, and you know it is a genetic disease. I'm not at all calling you an alcoholic, and hopefully you never have to deal with this, but Mm -hmm. you are more educated about this. What are your thoughts on drinking? So you're 15. When I was 15, I had had already been caught by my parents. I threw up at my friend's house. My parents had to come pick me up. I had probably already consumed alcohol 15 to 20 times as a normal drinker. Mm -hmm. And then after high school and early in college, that's when it progressed for me to become an alcoholic. But what are your thoughts on alcohol moving forward? And you don't have to say anything that's going to get you in trouble uh, about (laughs) drinking and stuff, but... Yeah, I mean, are are you just like, you know, let's let's go and, and until a red flag is raised, or are you kind of like proceeding with caution, shall I say? I feel like the situation of drinking or like the topic, I guess, is different for all people. For me, I feel like I'll still do it when I'm older, and I'll still have it, but I'm not going to go out and drink really hard like every night. I'm just probably going to, I don't know, just take it slow, and then if it ever gets to a point where I realize like, this isn't healthy for me anymore, then I'll stop. But I feel like I'm just more aware of like when it gets dangerous than other people. That is key what you just said. You will try it like a normal person. And if you do get to the point where you say, wait a second, when I start drinking, I find it very difficult to stop. You will have A, your mom to talk to, and B, just so much other resources that you already know about. That's got to feel good, right? Yeah, definitely. A lot of support and everything. And Emma, we talk on this podcast how alcoholism and being an alcoholic is a matter of life and death. However, we like to focus on the positive side of that is when we're in our drinking phase of our alcoholism, we're not living. So you said your mom was taking a lot of naps. Talk to me about the transformation of how your mom is now. And I know she's been sober for over a year. And Mm -hmm. is she more in the moment? Yeah, she's doing so much better. I'm really proud of her. She's a lot more present in her life and ours. Um, She's definitely been 
working hard to get her life back together. And um, she definitely knows what me and Jessa went through with her. And she's super supportive and just a lot better in general. Well, it sounds like you understand that you said she's working to get her life back together, and that takes mm-hmm. time. But the good news is, Emma, is, is she's cured, right? She'll never drink again. Am I right on that? I think so, yeah. I mean, there's always a chance of any alcoholic relapsing, but I think she's working hard enough to the point where she just doesn't even feel interested in it anymore. That was a trick question, and you passed, Emma. It sounds like you are open to the idea, which doesn't sound appealing, but you've got to be open to the idea that your mom might relapse one day, and that's part of the journey. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, it does not happen, but if it does, you are understanding and knowing that's part of the journey, and she'll be able to get back on course. And she's lucky to have a daughter like you that knows that. Now, from today moving forward, what are you looking forward to in sobriety for your mom? I don't know, just watching her continue to get better and continue to get on the right path and just fulfill her life. You know, just remembering like what it was like and how much better it is now and just keep making better memories in in the now. Emma, we have listeners who are probably in the same boat as you. They could be even the same age going into their junior year of high school whose parent could be their mom is also an alcoholic. What advice do you have for somebody who's on the other side to deal with a situation like this? I would just say, you know, get some help if they need it. Definitely make sure to look for signs of your parent, you know, just having a difficult time or, you know, if they need help, definitely don't be afraid to get it. Because I would know I was definitely afraid to get my mom's help when I was calling the suicide hotline. I thought she was going to be so mad at me for some reason. And it ended up making her life a ton better and mine. So don't be afraid to get help. Emma, fantastic stuff. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, you're welcome. I think that's so brave and valiant of Emma to join us on the Recovery Elevator podcast. And I really hope and think that Kelly is going to stay sober for the long haul. Now let's hear from Jim. Recovery Elevator, I'd like to welcome Jim to the podcast. Jim, how are you? Good, how are you today? I'm good, Jim. Thanks for joining us. Now listeners, Jim is 44. He is a father of a five-year-old son, and I'm going to let you answer the first question, Jim. How long have you been sober? I got sober October 13th, uh, 2012. Fantastic. Nice job. And and let's jump right into the podcast title, Recovery Elevator. When did you decide it was time to get off that elevator? I had, I thought, uh, I had a bottom in about the mid-90s. I went to my first treatment center in um, Arizona, Tucson. And, you know, uh, there is some stuff that I uh, learned from that that I that was beneficial to me. But for the most part, I've never surrendered. I uh, just got in a relationship with a female companion, and uh, I was drinking within uh, probably about a month after I got out, and uh, within a month I got a DUI, and then a month after that, within two or three weeks, um, I got my third uh, DUI, and they ran a concurrent. 
I went to my second treatment center. I was married. I got married in 2000. So uh, I think it was around 2007. And once again, uh, just kind of went through the motions, never surrendered. Uh, I was married at the time. Got home. And life just went on in the construction field for quite a few years of drinking, drugging. My final surrender was my sobriety date uh, when I had received my felony DUI. I didn't really know about surrendering and stuff, the absolute meaning of that. But in jail, I had decided through myself and my whole being that I just, I couldn't live like this anymore. My wife and I separated and I was in my garage uh, drinking and drugging and myself to death. So, you know, it was kind of a gift um, to, to receive that, to understand, to actually surrender 24 hours of time and to work my program of uh, my choice of recovery. And it is, um, I've had one, uh, my first sponsor, I had, uh, I think about a year and a half and he had moved away. So I had, I got the opportunity to go through and find another sponsor and um, uh, experience that. But I had almost 30 years of drinking and drugging, a couple of treatment centers and stuff until I had my um, final uh, surrender and that I've had uh, 24 hours of time until today. Talk to me about your drinking habits. That 30 years of drinking and drugging, how bad was it at the end? Did you ever try to control or regulate your drinking? Yeah, I mean, just like I had said, I've been to a couple of treatment centers. Um, at first, I was around 13. My parents had, around six or seven, my parents had gone through a pretty um, intense divorce. And I was, of course, acting out as a teenage boy around 13. And I was all through high school and middle school and stuff. And my friends, I would pretty much only drink on the weekends. And do that uh, fitting in. My uh, final bottom, you know, uh, was uh, almost three years ago, but I, I had several bottoms that I had perceived that were bottoms, and um, I just never surrendered. I uh, never gave my will over. I didn't really under understand completely steps one through three that um, that lies my problem. And, um, you know, uh, I drank essentially because, you know, I was alcoholic and I had uh, was a, had an inferior complex, but I was egotistical. <laughs> and um, uh, to understand that problem that I have, uh, I actually look at it as a gift anymore that it has changed my life tremendously. I'm able to live today in, in peace, not every day, in serenity, but um, I get the opportunity to uh, work on that at any time in my 24 hours and change my life, uh, even with a, a lot of stress, uh, a broken marriage of 15 years, a single parent. Uh, I was diagnosed this last, about a year, a little over a year ago with a non-curable disease. It's not fatal, but uh, it's a neurological disease. And it magnifies my uh, alcoholism and my addictions on top of that. So uh, I work my program extensively, not every day. <laughs> I, uh, a lot of days I'm still into self. I don't do my third step 
with uh, complete serenity. I understand that my will doesn't work anymore. I need to have trust and give it over to my higher power and to understand that uh, I'm no longer the actor. I'm the director. I'm not running the show. And I'm not, you know, um, all about Jim anymore. It's more about helping others and to try to, uh, just like today, to get my message back and if it can help anyone. That's my primary purpose in life anymore, to give the gift that was so freely given to me. And what I've learned about my recovery program is not, you know, that I needed it or I wanted it. I have to do it. Um, you know, it says in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which I believe wholeheartedly, you know, faith that our works is dead. And, um, you know, to finally surrender each and every day that, you know, uh, all my character defects, I have to work on daily. Um, my God of my understanding doesn't just wave a magic wand and take them away. I have to uh, actually work on them. And once I understood that and, and started working my program, I got to uh, the gift of desperation and the, and the gift of surrender every day. And it's extremely hard a lot of times um, not to be in self. Um, alcohol and drugging and a lot of my story was self-centered, all about self as it talks about and how it works, that chapter, and that in lies most uh, my problem. Drinking drugs were merely, merely a symptom of escaping uh, with, with my taking problem. Jim, you have mentioned the word surrender several times already in this podcast, which is a pretty important concept to grasp. But tell me more about that. When you first surrendered, what was it like at that point moving forward? Was that right after the felony DUI? Was that the moment you truly surrendered? And, and what were the first, what was the next day like, the next month, the next year? Did, did you go to jail? Yes, I was a felony. I spent... Uh, um this time around, uh, quite a few, uh, days in jail until, um, I, um, <clears throat> had called someone in, not really talked to in, but asked them to release me. And, um, like I said, I, I had been in and out of recovery for years. So I had known where the meeting, meeting was in Bozeman. So I got home and got on my bicycle and straight there. And, um, my, uh, true surrender is, you know, fear, uh, what I have come to learn in my recovery is uh, kind of a double-edged sword. I can let fear drive me to a point of the gift of desperation to get to a point I get in so much pain, I actually do my recovery instead of just want it. Or I can let fear run my life in a sense that um, I do all kinds of things. I have my character defects based around fear, uh, not trusting, um, running the show, and when I completely surrender, I understand in life that obviously it hasn't been working that I am running my own life and that uh, my life has gotten unmanageable because the main reason it was unmanageable is that I didn't have a spiritual being in my life. And my understanding of that is it has nothing to do with religion or anything like that. It is all about loving, tolerance, and patience with another human being. And when I get to give my will over to a uh, power greater than myself, I get to have the opportunity to get out of myself and my thinking to help another human being, um, whether it's mow their lawn, uh, if they're not even in recovery, or have a nice conversation with another person that's struggling with addiction. And that is my primary purpose. 
on days that I walk out of my house and I don't completely surrender, I um, kind of half-ass my my recovery, my steps one through three, uh, I don't get to have that. But I do get the opportunity at any point in time of the day to understand step 11 and have my conscious contact with a power grader myself to give it back over, to restart, to try again, to understand that, you know, Jim, you have a disease that your mind is constantly telling you that you are, you're running the show. You can do this. You know, you don't need help. And it is evident over and over and over again that I do. <laughs> and, uh, you know, once I can do that, I'm I'm somewhat free, and um, I can surrender that I'm not running the show. And it actually makes my life a lot more manageable and happy, but my mind, my disease is constantly telling me that that's not what I'm supposed to do, unless I'm actually truly, honestly understanding that I, step one, I am powerless pretty much over everything, whether it's my disease, whether it's someone's feelings whether it's uh, the traffic hand that irritates me, that I'm powerless. And like I had mentioned, I get to re- reboot my day and try to do step one through three again and then try to do step 11 to have that conscious contact with my higher power and understand that I'm not the actor, I'm not the director in life. I need to completely surrender and have that faith that everything's going to be okay and not have my mind tell me all the time that, you know, my life's unmanageable, am I good enough, or I'm going to take control of the situation. And that is extremely hard to me. And uh, when I understood, finally understood the concept of uh, progress, not perfection, I knew not to hide behind it, but I also knew to understand that in a sense that not to beat myself up, if that makes sense to you. Jim, it makes a lot of sense. And listeners, if you are out there listening right now and you are thinking about quitting drinking, you're listening to us alcoholics and you've got to be saying, man, these guys sound like a broken record. They just keep repeating themselves. And here's why. Jim just said it. Our addictions tell us just the opposite. Our addictions actually tell us what we do want to hear. So myself and Jim, I constantly have to tell myself, look, Paul, I only need to take this 20 four hours at a time, one day at a time. you got to surrender. We can't control. I am not in charge of the show. So we're also telling it to you guys, the listeners, but we're also telling it to ourselves just to remind ourselves. Am I correct on that, Jim? Yes, you are. Um, it's a uh, uh, process, not perfection. And I have a lot of friends that are 30 years plus uh, of sobriety. And they tell me all the time that it gets easier with that progress, but the uh, disease never goes away. It's a 24-hour program that we have to do. And once I started wrapping my mind around that, it doesn't matter if you have this disease of addiction or not. Everyone only has 24 hours. I lost a couple of friends in the last year or two years. One of them was a addict alcoholic, and the other one was uh, with a that were normal, I guess, means. And, you know, it's life, um, and we have to live it, but why not enjoy it while we're here, you know? Uh, I know when I was in my use, um, I can honestly look back uh, over the years that, you know, I had a lot of fear. I hid behind my addictions. I hid behind a lot of things, you know, uh, whether it was extreme sports or whatever, to justify to myself that I'm okay, and 
not realize the perception that people have about me to stay in my own mind, my selfishness to use the perception that I had about me and um, understand what that selfishness is. And, um, you know, it's, um, it's very uh, liberating for me when I can work my program, which I try to do every day, to its fullest and understand that it really, drugs and alcohol was merely a symptom of the true shortcoming, I guess, of uh, my... Can I ask you to expand on that a little bit, how the alcoholism is a mere symptom of our shortcomings or our character defects? The drinking is the symptom of the disease? That's a tough one to swallow. Can you tell us more about that? Well, I guess, I mean, I can elaborate. I can put it in, in layman's terms, I guess, in the sense of my thinking. Um, I guess, like, if my tying my shoes or getting dressed altered my mood state, uh, made me feel that I was more or less in society the way society perceived me instead of myself perceiving myself, I would be doing that all the time. The same as drinking or drugging. I used those. I guess you could call them tools to escape the reality of the sense that, you know, I felt that, you know, I was uniquely different because I had reddish hair instead of what a lot of people don't have. I was uniquely different because I had this chip on my shoulder. I was uniquely different because I constantly wanted to fit in, in, in my own self. I didn't feel very good about myself, but I wanted to give the world this actor that this is who I am. Look at me, how great I am, my ego. And when I can completely surrender, like we talk about, talked about, I can understand that I don't have to do that anymore. I can be comfortable in my own skin and live my own life and stay on my side of the street and work on the amounts of problems or character defects that I have. And I get the opportunity when I get drugs and alcohol out of my life to surrender, to understand that I'm not running the show here, get out of myself in a sense that I can be okay in my skin. I can not be that kid and that person who hid behind full of fear of alcohol and drugs, but giving the world a perception of myself which actually wasn't the perception that I perceived that I was giving because of my illness of, of uh, my mind, the obsession of my mind. I can obsess over, like I mentioned, tying my shoes or anything in this world, overeating. Uh, I actually work my programming and look at, is Jim running the show today? Or did I truly do my third step understand? Die will be done instead of Jim's. And because when Jim's will is put out in the, in the world, which happens these days, progress, not perfection, that it's kind of a shit show. I do more damage than I do good. And I, this program has given me the gift that I finally got to my bottom to say, I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't live my life this way. When I got out of jail, I laid on my couch and I just, Cried. I thought of everything that I dishonest that I had done in life, how I'd taken advantage of people, family, non-family, all for my selfishness because of Jim, what Jim wanted. Instead of ever giving back to someone, when I was in my addictions, it was all about what can I get from you? 
And if I work my program, it is all about what can I gift you? What can I, how can I help you? It gets out of me thinking of the obsession of the mind of like basically, oh, I got all these problems. I'm 10 years down the road. I'm not going to finish school. And I got to change my life. I got, uh, God is taking a you know what on me today because I got this horrible disease, uh, alcoholism and, uh, multiple sclerosis. Uh, my marriage got imploded. I had to be a single parent. When I help someone, all that goes away. I get to give back like we're giving today, um, to talk to another alcoholic that might have the same thinking as myself. If I talk to someone that's not sure if they're alcoholic or not, that is not for me to ever say, think, or whatever. That is up to that individual to understand. I can only give my experience and my strength and my hope. And when I get to do that, it's, it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing, man. Jim, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Sure. All right. What was the worst memory from drinking? Probably my felony DUI, um, my marriage imploding from a lot of my addictions and, you know, just stupid stuff I had done, you know, streaking, being arrested for streaking and things like that, just stupid stuff that I had done. Thought I had friends sitting on a bar stool, which uh, coming to find out that they're not really my friends. Jim, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? I would like to finish my degree at Montana State, change my life on a 24-hour basis to uh, work my program so I can finish my degree in counseling to um, try to give back what was so freely given to me and to be the best father I can to my son and the best human being I can on a 24-hour basis. Jim, what's your favorite resource in recovery? My favorite resource would probably step 12, uh, when I truly have a spiritual awakening on a 24-hour basis, that I get to have a conversation with another person that has, has, um, or, uh, is in recovery uh, that has maybe addiction problems. And to share my experience to strength and hope and to listen to their experience to strength and hope because it's not all about Jim. And I get to uh, have that experience of other people's story. When I start looking at the similarities of the thinking instead of the differences, I, it starts clicking with me and I understand recovery. Jim, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? <laughs> my first sponsor used to give me these things that are in the back of the book that used to just drive me nuts. But I completely understand them now. The things that say easy does it are, you know, thing, you know, uh, no wife, no job, you know, all this stuff. And now that I can understand them, they make complete sense. But I would probably say the best advice that has ever been given to me in sobriety or uh, any uh, relief from addiction is it is um, a 24-hour program. And I get to try again tomorrow for 24 hours. God willing, I wake up with my eyes open. And that, you know, uh, I can want AA, I can need Alcoholics Anonymous, but I have to do it. And I have to work on my sobriety and work on Jim every day. Jim, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking or are in early recovery? To surrender that we talked about, to understand that if you are thinking about that, that it, you know, is it working? Um, is it to the point in your life that you are ready 
that you have taken a true inventory, a look at yourself that maybe it's not working, uh, that, you know, understand the concept. One drink is too much can kill me and a thousand is not enough. And that's how my brain is wired. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I just have to take a different journey in life and that it's okay that there's, I am no different than the gentleman that sleeps stuck on the bench last night with a brown bag as the gentleman that I know that was the executive vice president one time of a major company. And understanding that there are differences in our stories, but we all have the same similarities in our thing. And that is a gift and the gift of desperation that I understand that I have to do this and our eyes will not be the father of my son needs or the human I need to be on this planet, and I would probably be dead. Jim, you mentioned your favorite resource was the 12th step and passing it on to others, and you've done just that today. So thank you so much for joining us today, Jim. You bet, Paul. One cool thing about podcasting is you can edit it wherever you want. I edited tonight's podcast episode up Spanish Creek which is a turnoff from the canyon up to Big Sky, Montana. And you can see my view while editing this podcast at the recoveryelevator.com website. Go to podcast and find episode 24. There's a gorgeous stream running right in front of where I'm editing the podcast. In fact, it's a lot like a river runs through it, which reminds me of my favorite quote. Although life is a work of art, the moment cannot last. The summer before my freshman year in college, I said that to myself, all the time. That was like the best summer of my life. Although that summer was so incredible, it had to end. Now, those moments were few and far in between after that. And for about five, six, seven years, I completely forgot about that quote in terms of happiness, but I would recite that quote when shit was really, really bad. Say, although life is a work of art, this shit's gotta get better. These terrible feelings and this terrible moment that I'm experiencing, it cannot last. However, on the other side of the coin, Pushing 11 months of sobriety. I've started to say that phrase again. Although life is a work of art, the moment cannot last. But I'm saying it on the other side, the happy side. I'm experiencing things that I don't want to end. Conversations, hikes, lunch with friends, whatever it may be. And it feels wonderful. Recovery Elevator, thank you for joining us for part two of the four-part series, The Other Side. Next week, We've got Cassie, who is the wife of an alcoholic, and she has an amazing story to tell. You guys have to listen to this. Recovery Elevator, you took the elevator down. You got to take the steps back up. You can do this. <laughs>